Well, Rosemary, a couple of Australians have decided to book continuous cruises. They have actually done 51 cruises back to back starting uh, about a little over a year ago now. And they spent 450 days living on a Princess Cruise Coral Princess ship so far. And they claim that it's cheaper than living in Australia. <laughs> so they're, they're retired. They don't have any place to be. But I guess uh, living in Australia is pretty expensive. And it's actually cheaper to get a cabin on a cruise ship where they just make all the food and you can look at the beautiful ocean and live on a cruise ship. So, Rosemary, there, there's hope in the, in the home search in Australia. You just get a cruise. I can't think of anything worse than living on a cruise ship. Um, yeah, I like my personal space. <laughs> I get seasick. <laughs> I like I like to yeah be be outside and um, experiencing nature and in, in charge of my own <laughs> my own life. But I think that I, it's not that they said it's cheaper than living in Australia. They said it's cheaper than living in a retirement home, right? In Australia. Yeah, but a retirement home has like nurses and and stuff. I mean, they've obviously got good health if they are not concerned about only having access to the, you know, little dinky sick room on a a cruise ship. It's catchy. And if they love cruising and, you know, they've they've got the money, then go for it. But um, yeah, no, I can confirm that it's not cheaper to go on a cruise than to just, you know, pay rent and buy groceries in Australia. (laughs) I don't know. The buffets are... Pretty well stocked on those cruise ships. You, you would be well fed. The dessert bar, the chocolate fountain. Come on, Rosemary. They have a pool, uh, shuffleboard. Honestly, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't do a, a cruise for more than a, a, a weekend, and I would only do that if I had a good reason to suffer through it. A cruise is not my idea of a good time. I'm not, I'm not a cruising personality. <laughs> Phil, you've been on a cruise. Come on. No, and I never will. Joel, you been on a cruise? I have a 17-foot boat that I go fishing on, if you count that as cruising. Wow, we got a lot of landlubbers here. You know, it's one of the main reasons why I I decided not to pursue being an astronaut, because I just don't want to be trapped in inside for, you know, weeks on end. That sounds horrible to me. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. When did this happen? When were you going to be an astronaut? When I was a teenager, I wanted, wanted to be an astronaut. And, you know, I went as far as studying aerospace engineering. Does Australia have a space program? No, we don't have a space program. That's the other problem. I would have had to um, probably, you know, pursue American citizenship. You have a good Arctic research program. You could have done some Arctic research. That would have been a good one for you guys. I still, I still hope to go go to Antarctica. I applied actually for a um, for a program for um, yeah media to go do a, a trip to Antarctica. I didn't get in, but I'm going to apply again. Well, Rosemary, we can talk to Elon and get you uh, one of those rides with SpaceX. Yes, I, I'm. Uh, this is me asking. Rosemary wants to leave the planet. Uh, yes, space tourism is is more up my alley than actual career astronaut. I think Rosemary's too tall. Were you going to be an astronaut too, Alan? Well, as soon as you cross about six foot tall. Yeah, I'm under. I'm under six six foot. I squeak in just under six foot, so I'm I'm okay. You're, yeah, yeah, I'm just under. Joel, he he wouldn't survive the worm from Wrath of Khan, so he he's not going to do well in space. I'm not doing that. No, that was terrorizing when that movie came out. That was a long time ago. That was that, that give you some sleepless nights. It's like the flying monkeys from the Wizard of Oz. Phil, we've been getting a lot of uh, people who listen to the podcast trying to reach us via email. And what they do instead is they hit us on Twitter or on LinkedIn and 
DMing. <laughs> they're in, they, they drop into my DMs and <laughs> send me notes about the podcast. And I said, well, just contact Rosemary. She's, she's our point of contact. And Rosemary got tired of it. So she said, can you make an email address? I'm like, okay. So we did. So if you want to contact the Uptime Podcast, just email us at, at uptime at wglightning, L-I-G-H-T-N-I-N-G dot com. And uh, Joel or Rosemary will get back to you within 24 hours. That's what they promised me. So uh, it is a good place to reach us. And if you have a product or a company you want to be highlighted on, on the podcast we haven't heard of, and there's a lot of new technology out there, email us. Yeah, we, we'd love to hear about it. So GE Aerospace Research is demonstrating a soft robot called the Sensorworm for jet engine inspections. Now, Rosemary, when I saw this, I thought, no one's going to use this on a jet engine. They're going to use this, totally use this on a wind turbine. And this, this little Sensorworm is, uh, it looks to be tethered. It looks like sometimes it has a cable behind it, sometimes not. But it's like a little inchworm robot that can kind of wiggle itself through small crevices, and it can detect. Defects in the surface, uh, corrosion, measuring coating thicknesses. It has a little camera on it so you can see where it's going. But it opens up the possibility of looking in tight places you otherwise couldn't, maybe couldn't get a boroscope in or couldn't look, look around a corner. You can put this little Sensi worm and drop it in there and it'll kind of squirm its way over to where you need to investigate uh, a product, a gear, gearbox or any kind of component, I guess. It looks like sort of neat technology that GE's been working on. Yeah, it's not just neat, it's adorable. It's, I don't think that I've ever described any technology we've covered on this podcast as adorable, but this one is. They need to stick some googly eyes on it and then it would just be perfect. Um, I definitely high, highly recommend that everyone Google this as a, a really cute um, YouTube video showing this little sensor worm out and about on adventures. It reminds me a lot of the Very Hungry Caterpillar. I don't know if... Um, Everyone remembers that from from their childhood, or maybe they've got kids they read that book to. But yeah, there's this little little worm, is you know the little worm that could is <laughs> get get into little crevices, and I don't know, does so with a smile on his face. It looks like um, I, I guess that it's it's expensive um, for wind at first, which is why you know marketing it for um, aero applications first, but I would hope that it's going to, you know, after a few years, it's going to get cheap enough that we can be, yeah, putting putting these into inspect blades or maybe, you know, even repair blades um, in places where people can't reach. That's definitely a big a big problem in the wind industry. Any Anything that happens inside a blade past the maximum entry distance, um, which is most of the blade, you know, it's just bad luck. You've got to go out and you've got to cut into it from the outside. Um, so, yeah. This, this could help. Joel, I was going to, Rosemary's hit on this, uh, which is access, right? In certain parts of the blades, when we go inspect them, you got these little rovers, right? But the rovers, cars are still have height to them. They have all these little sensors on them. To, But you think that you drive the rover car up and then the sensor worm would hop out and just kind of wiggle its way to where you really want to look, which is kind of close to the tip, right? The smallest rover that I know of in the marketplace right now is about 20 centimeters wide and about 20 centimeters tall. I think it's like 17 centimeters tall. So that's the smallest it can get into. Now, if you're in, you know, if you're in the leading edge chamber or in the trailing edge chamber, that really limits you. 
um, uh, if you're in a dual shear web application. But even so, like Rosemary said, you can't get very far in these blades. If it's a 50 meter blade, you're probably able to get 20 meters into it. If so, with something like this, maybe 25 meters. Um, so being able to go in a little bit for a lot bit further with this thing is tiny, uh, would be, would be huge. Uh, it's just time. Uh, what kind of sensors can you put on it? Cameras or things like that. I'm thinking in my mind, I'm thinking, is this thing small enough to put inside of a drain hole? Could we do that? You know, then you wouldn't have to, you know, ba otherwise basically, yeah, you got to, you got to go drop it off with a with a crawler of some sort. But the other applications I'm thinking about as well is all of rotating equipment, right? So every, anything that you can use a bore scope for, now you can get further in. Uh, hopefully you don't lose the dang thing, but you can get further in on any kind of bore scope operation into the gearboxes or, or anything like that as well. You could do bolt inspection, uh, although there's plenty of tools that do bolt inspection. But again, I don't know if you have... Like if you wanted to implement like a more complicated bolt structure uh, that was potentially less accessible or you wanted to do like, you know, pitch or yaw bearing inspection or something like that, this could come in handy. It does seem like there's applications in wind industry. Seriously, there are, there are places where there's a lot of tight areas and some turbines and you could definitely throw this into your tool bag if it works out. I'm surprised that GE hasn't developed it further to put it into practice somewhere. I know they're, they're pushing it on the air, aircraft side with the jet engines, but uh, it does seem like there's a lot of other industries where it makes some sense to, to use something like this. It's neat, neat technology. And check out the YouTube video. You ever see the Wrath of Khan? You ever see that movie, Star Trek? Where they put the little bug in the helmet and put it on the guy and it goes in his ear and then it controls the guy? That's exactly what I thought of when you said you're going to put this thing in the drain hole, Joel. <laughs> like, that's a little eerie. It could. This thing could be used. It could be used offshore to inspect toilets in the new turbines out there. Oh, why hasn't GE thought of that? They got 650 researchers working on the sensor worm thing, or, or in total, not just on the sensor worm thing. But you think somebody would say, toilets, that's where the money is. The Pegasus Welfare Solutions Group has delivered... Uh, quote-unquote, welfare solution to the Aberdeen Offshore Wind Farm. And you're saying, what, what is a welfare solution? Well, it's, it's a toilet that goes on offshore wind turbines because it is a problem, uh, obvious problem. It's like, what happens when? Uh, they, the agreement with the Aberdeen Wind Farm is a, has a three-year service agreement uh, with the operator, which is Vattenfall, right? So the, the Swedes have connected with Pegasus to provide this solution. And this Pegasus Welfare Solution is a patented in-tower turbine toilet for all 11 turbines at this farm. So this has got to be a pretty complicated thing if you're patenting a toilet. Uh, the contract covers training, consumable supplies, and servicing of the unit. Right. So that, as Phil mentioned earlier today, what does training involve with these toilets? I, I, I'm not sure. Do they come with a manual? Are they that complicated? But what do you do with it? You know, like you then. You've got to take it down again with you or, you know, is it like it being um, cartridges exchanged by drone or, or what? I assume that that's what the training is about. <laughs> yeah, but the, the reality of the situation is, is there's, there's no toilet out there. So when, some, when you go to work on a wind turbine, if you're in a, a CTV, a, you know, a crew transfer vessel or an SOV, you have a walk to work or you have the vessel come up next to the transition piece. You get off, you get on, the boat goes away. The boat does not hang out there. Now, the boat has a restroom on it, and that transition now, it's dangerous, for one. 
making that transition to the, the transition piece of the wind turbine from the vessel. So that's dangerous. So you want to limit those kind of transfers as much as you can. But it also burns a lot of fuel to be on DP, if you're on dynamic positioning, if you're in an SOV. And it also takes a lot of time. It takes time to come back in, come back out of someone's like, I have to go to a potty break. So putting these toilets in the offshore wind turbines, it's probably a really good OPEX move for the money spent in service. I laughed so hard when I saw this. I said, um, yeah, this eliminates the need to return to a vessel to use restroom facilities. And I've never worked offshore, but I've worked onshore plenty of times. And no one is climbing down the tower to go <laughs> to go find a toilet or even find a nice, you know, isolated tree. You know, the, the men uh, are going up there and the women are, are holding it. Um, so, yeah, that's that's how it works in, in reality. So, you know, I think it's actually a really, really good, um, you know, gender equality thing if they're going to have toilets up there, because it, I can tell you this is something that you're <laughs> you're thinking about every day that you go out on site. You're like, well, I shouldn't get dehydrated. But on the other hand, there's a lot of benefits to being dehydrated <laughs> all day. If you're yeah, got to climb up a turbine, you might be there for 12 hours, you know, like it's it's something that you're <laughs> that you're thinking about, I can assure you. So what is happening in Aberdeen, right? Aberdeen's on the North Sea, right, Joel? Right? The North Sea is like one of the most turbulent places on the planet, right? So what are, what are they doing? Are they going on top of the turbines? And then that just sounds, one, it sounds extremely dangerous, and two, messy. Water bottles. Water bottles, man. Water bottles. Yeah, and then in onshore as well, it's like, you know, you know not to park the car in certain um, areas underneath the turbine because you, you might, you know, get get a little a little precipitation on, on your roof, depending on, on the, the projectile dynamics. You know what? This is going to be one of the weirdest episodes we have ever done. But Sparks, you know, this is um, number one, number one question that I get asked by teenage girls when I, you know, talk in high schools about, um, you know, working with, with in the wind industry. It gets us every single time and always by uh, a woman. So, yeah, I, I think that maybe, you know, it's not such a big deal for, for men and especially in an all-male crew, but if it's, uh, you know, mixed, mixed gender crew or, you know, usually just one, one woman up with a bunch of guys, it's super awkward. Yeah, so I, I, I do – this is really interesting, though, because I, don't, I do not know what's happening off the coast of the United States right now. You would have to think what Vineyard Wind's going in right now. There's a couple others that are going to happen. I don't think there's any provisions for that at all, weirdly enough, in my state of Massachusetts, where that would be a top priority. I don't think they have anything like that. No. this Well, because this company also has other, uh, a few other contracts in the UK, and I think maybe one in France uh, or Germany, I want to say. Um, but this is not a common accommodation that's actually made. Uh, so, Alan, you asked before if this is like in the budget. I'd say most of the time, not necessarily. So kudos to Vattenfall for actually being proactive. Um, and again, whether it was a gender equality thing or just, you know, a, a personal comfort thing, um, it's it's certainly helping the people who are out there, you know, like Rosemary said, for potentially 12 hours a day or even sleeping aboard the, you know, on on the foundation, potentially. Uh, you know, if if you have to be there for service, you know, for a couple of days or something, you know, hopefully not. But I mean, there are, um, you know, turbines that also have that type of, of personal accommodation. And again, not all of them have necessarily taken into account this this uh, type of personal wellness and hygiene. Are there sleeping quarters in some of these offshore turbines? I, I guess that would make sense to me, like put a small fridge in there, 
Yeah, it's not no, not like that. It's basically just a cot. If you've seen the movie Tenet, um, there's a scene at the towards the beginning of the movie. I actually just watched it. Um, I didn't quite get it, so I'm gonna have to watch it again. But there's a scene at the beginning where you can see kind of the the little setup at uh, I think it was one of the wind farms in Sweden or Norway. I want to say I don't remember which. I haven't seen that before. I, I guess it would be a thing. The further you get offshore, the more you'd think that you'd put like a fridge and some snacks and a cot somewhere just in case. To be blunt, I mean, most of the time now, even though Joel mentioned before how these these uh, CTVs don't necessarily loiter um, after they've done the crew transfer, the they're designing vessels now, more of the SOV vessels and, and things that are maybe a little bit intermediate to larger that can serve as kind of motherships and they might have multiple CTVs that are kind of associated with the mothership. Um, so they might actually transfer crew back to these, they call them floatels. Um, I, I want to say uh, Sea Wind uh, is one company I know that that does these these kind of vessels where, you know, if they have crew that are going to be out, you know, at a project site offshore for, you know, extended duration, let's say there's a, a you know, fleet repair of cables or there might be something with a series of blades that they have to do. Um, they might actually have that accommodation. It's rare to have like an actual personal accommodation on the turbine. But again, there must be a specific reason why Vattenfall wanted this solution for for this project. Joel, I see a coffee table book in our future. Toilets of wind turbines. <laughs> it's just got this one page in it. <laughs> Alan, the anti-wind turbine people are going to just take that and twist it, and that's not going to end well for anybody. Yeah, one page is this toilet, and then the other next page is just yeah, uh, a yellow bottle of like mineral water or something. Hey, uptime listeners! We know how difficult it is to keep track of the wind industry. That's why we read PES Wind magazine. PES Wind doesn't summarize the news; it digs into the tough issues. And PES Wind is written by the experts, so you can get the in-depth info you need. Check out the wind industry's leading trade publication, PESWind at PESWind.com. Well, the EU is considering investigating if China uses subsidies to promote its wind turbine manufacturers. And I think the answer to that is obviously yes. Who doesn't? Uh, this could happen this month as the Europe is looking to protect it's wind industry and with the Siemens Gamesa situation that it's happening in Vestas, not in great financial shape. There's going to be a lot of pressure on the EU to, to look at China. Uh, now this is sort of in reaction to, uh, unfair practices. Uh, the, the, the EU had a recent probe about China's electric vehicle market, same sort of thing. And China was really upset about the EV market where they were trying to limit EVs from China coming into Europe, obviously there's a huge market in Europe for EVs and China can definitely deliver there, but Europeans are very protective of their territory. So it's causing really a kind of conflict here on the, in the renewable sector by itself for a moment. Obviously, a lot of wind turbine components come from China still to the major manufacturers in Europe. Uh, so it isn't like the wind turbines feel are completely made in Europe. They're not. Uh, but this does create a weird tension in the renewable space, doesn't it, where European companies are dependent upon Chinese components, 
And China is manufacturing a lot of the wind turbines pretty much 100% in country, not being able to enter that marketplace with a delivered product. How do they navigate this without this blowing up into a, a much bigger problem? Right. This is a this is a great question, and it's it's kind of something that's evolved into you know the the heart and soul of of the industry at this point. You know, this is almost like a, you know a, a internal battle that we have to decide on. You know, are we going to uh, continue just leveraging cheap Chinese made goods? Um, as kind of a, a mechanism that creates price competition and puts pressure on the Western OEMs who are already facing a lot of margin pressure as it is, uh, or are we actually going to allow the Chinese to potentially do what they frankly want to, which is kind of come into Western markets and slowly but steadily build enough market share to the point where they can take over. So that said... The question then becomes, well, okay, if the Chinese aren't going to be able to, you know, build their cheap goods in China, export them to Western markets, is that a good thing for the industry, number one? And then is it a good thing for consumers? The, the first question, if it's good for the industry, you have to balance the, you know, lesser cost of, you know, these these goods against the the tax revenue loss and the jobs that are potentially being lost by having the goods made outside of you know if it's the EU territory um versus you know more expensive uh turbine costs uh in our case or solar cost translates into higher project capex which translates into the necessity to have higher PPAs which means that all of us as electricity consumers pay the penalty for that. Um, so the question is, is there a point at which we can reach a happy balance? Um, because, you know, certainly in this this latest round of inflation, you know, we've all felt the pinch of increasing prices on consumer goods, on, on electricity, on everything. Um, and there's got to be a breaking point because at the end of the day, I don't feel like paying $37 for a cheeseburger. So, you know, yes, everybody's entitled to a living wage, but we've got to be able to come up with a, a workable solution that recognizes the fact that the Chinese are here, whether we want them or not. Well, to kind of back up what you were saying there, there's a, there was an article put up by the Enercon CEO, Jurgen Chesky, right? And he says, without political action... Europe's onshore wind market will soon be in Chinese hands. But an interesting thing that he says in the article, project developers report aggressive offers from Chinese manufacturers that are already up to 30% below the prevailing market price. So that's happening in Europe right now. Uh, and, and he also goes on to say, in addition, Chinese competitors, bolstered by government support, operate with unethical financing models where they will give grant full advances. Customers pay only years later after the entire wind farm is commissioned. And the European manufacturers just can't compete with that. So he he goes on in the article to state some ideas, right? Like which is great, right? He says here's the problem, here's maybe some solutions. And one of his ideas is to say, you know, in a European tender, because he's not only fighting the Chinese here in this article, he's talking about fighting against the IRA bill, because the IRA bill basically, you know, subsidizes uh, energy in the U.S. at about one hundred and sixty thousand dollars per megawatt, right? So. He's saying, we have to fight that. Now we've got to fight the Chinese. So one of the things that we can do as a group, if you're a project developer within Europe, is you can add extra points, 
you know, put them to the top of the list if you're a European manufactured goods. And that should be, that should get some extra bonus points within the tender process for project developers. So there's, there's definitely something going on here. And, um, you know, the, the idea that Europe has kind of severed ties with Russia on gas or trying to, right. Um, and going to renewables, but now they're end up in having to rely on China. That's scaring a lot of people politically. Yeah, isn't it a good idea to be proactive? Like, do we need to wait until this gets to the same point as we're at with, you know, rare earths and uh, all, most of the other critical minerals where, you know, um, yeah, all of the, all of the battery stuff. Yeah, solar solar panels, although solar panels, I think, is a bit a bit different um, because uh, China was, you know, legitimately developed those manufacturing processes that were a large contributor to the cost going down. And it's not the same with, with wind energy. They, um, you know, they haven't developed the, the broad technology that, um, you know, has made wind as successful as it is today. That was primarily Europe. Um, so then, you know, it's gone to China and then come back. But, you know, like, do you get to the point where all every manufacturer except for China goes bust? Um, and then everyone realizes, oh, we actually need a, you know, a supply chain that isn't a single country and then starts to fix it with, yeah, like stuff like the, the IRA and Europe's equivalent. Can't, yeah, can't we be preemptive? And I mean, I know that working in the industry myself, you know, at least five, maybe a few more years ago than that, it was really clear when we were pricing new products to come onto the market you know, even if you just add up the, you know, like the actual raw materials that are involved in what you're trying to make, um, you still could usually not match the price that these were coming out of China for. So, you know, it's been obvious for quite a number of years that something is a little bit, a little bit funny with the, the pricing models. And it's not that, I mean, I, I can say with certainty, it's not just, you know, poor engineering on the part of the European manufacturers or a lack of effort or getting, you know, too comfortable with, um, you know, having it too good in the market and being able to charge too much and getting lazy. It, I mean, it's, it's not like that. And we see the results in, you know, all of the um, non-Asian manufacturers are, are really struggling with profitability. And I think that part of the reason is that, you know, they've been having to compete with on price with, um companies that aren't playing by the same rules as everybody else. And so we've seen, you know, like great we've, for the industry, it seemed really great that we've had just really steep price reductions, but I think um, we've, you know, kind of dipped under the natural point of, of what turbines should be selling for now. And this is probably a big part of the reason. And if we want to install gigawatts and gigawatts and gigawatts over the next couple of decades, then you actually need profitable companies um, and, you know, continuing innovation and that sort of thing. And I, I do think it's definitely worth getting ahead of these issues and not just waiting for companies to go bankrupt before you start to respond. Just keep one other thing in mind, too. The current price for wind turbines uh, in China, the average price, is was just quoted uh, the other day at being around 1,900 yuan per kilowatt. That basically, when you convert it, is about three hundred and thirty to three hundred forty thousand dollars per megawatt. That is a preposterously low number, and that includes that includes the tower, by the way, because um, sometimes they'll quote you numbers that don't include the tower. That includes the tower, uh, and you know that's competing up against uh, the global market average, excluding China now, which is closer to about nine hundred and eighty thousand to. You know, most markets are kind of inching back up to about one million a megawatt. 
uh, if they're not already higher. You know, there's there's going to have to be a balance achieved with this because the the Chinese have been working on this and trying to get more credibility in Western markets for the past twenty years. They play a very long game, and they're not looking at next quarter. They're looking at what this market is going to look like 10 years from now and how they're going to shape and influence it. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. Well, moving on to India, because this is the, the center of all this activity and Chinese wind turbines and where they're going in the world at the minute is, I think, really going to be a focus on India. Well, Envision is the top wind turbine supplier in India, ahead of Suzlon and Siemens Gamesa. And in, in 2022 and 23, they've booked over two gigawatts of orders in India. And this uh, fiscal year, it looks like it's going to be bigger. Uh, so there is a huge push there by Envision to to go into places where the the wind market is a, uh, unstable at the minute. So Islan, you'd think, would be the leader in India, but it, it clearly is not. And it seems Kamesa has been in that area for a while. And GE made noise this week saying they're going to be pushing heavily into India also. So you know the growth in India is going to be big. But Envision has wind turbines that are sort of designed for that marketplace. Uh, the 3.3 megawatt turbine is really good for because India doesn't have great wind speeds, but pretty consistent winds. And they're on a push for 100 gigawatts of wind power by 2030. That's which they're going to need a lot of wind and turbines. Uh, so there, there's opportunities for Chinese suppliers to push into different places. Brazil, obviously, was probably one of those places. India is another. Does why worry about Europe? I, and we, we have seen, I, I think, Joel, you've seen it, and maybe Rosemary, you've seen it too in Australia. You see a lot of Chinese representation of wind turbines at conferences where they're just testing the waters, trying not to make too many waves at these conferences. They'll tell you uh, that they don't intend on selling anything. They're just there to, to get information, see what's happening in the marketplace. All true, sure. But at the back end of this thing, there has to be a, uh, some sort of sale. Otherwise, there wouldn't be people out testing the waters. Does, does this kind of turn into a little more of a global trade issue just because of the nature of the, of the countries that are in play at the moment in terms of who is friendly with whom? I think you're absolutely correct, Alan. <clears throat> with, so Envision here, interesting thing about Envision. Envision actually has an engineering specialty house in Colorado, which is an oddity for a Chinese... OEM of anything. Um, but what they're doing is, is kind of taking advantage, like you said, of tumultuous markets. So they're not going to go headstrong envision a, a Ming Yang or a Goldwyn, go headstrong into an, a market where they can't really compete yet. But they're grabbing little bits and information and, and building their own things in, in these developing markets. There's a lot of uh, also the same thing in you know the APAC regions full of it in Vietnam and Thailand, things like that. But they're they're going to build up their their knowledge base and their their product and prove it in those markets, and then you will start to see it try to break into the other ones. And and politically is going to be the only thing that that keeps them out. So 
this is an interesting thing here on the political side, and this is where my mind has been going as we've been talking about this. I actually have a family member who works for the United States government, and her job is to represent the United States and uh, impartial the UN in trade negotiation and talks. So basically, they're, they, her agency, organization, that she works for at the federal government level in the U.S., it goes around the world and speaks with other countries about fair trade, regu- fair trade. So that means regulations, labor practices, uh, financial models, all these things. So we have a, within the U.S. an organization that's devoted to doing this and keeping a, basically a fair table uh, for economic reasons around the world. And it's a, it's a humanitarian effort as well. And, you know, it's in some respects, um, but it's tra- it's to keep people playing on the same playing field. And this, to me, seems like it should be at the top of their list simply because we're not only talking about manufactured goods, but we're talking about energy security. And energy security uh, globally is a big issue for anybody. I mean, more and more and more, every I'm staring at my desk right now and I can see five different cables with different things plugged in, right? If you don't have energy security, your, your economy can't run and your people can't thrive. So I think that this is going to become, in the coming years, a, a hot button topic all the way to the top of the federal government. Speaking of technology, TPI Composites is, div- is partnering with the University of Tennessee, Knoxville on recycling wind turbine blades. And what they're trying to do is use the glass fiber from the wind turbines at the end of life and then create a higher value material with that. And their thought was like, well, we have all this fiberglass in these wind turbines. Maybe we can turn it into some other fabric-like product or woven product. Uh, that has a higher value back into the industry. So you could actually make money off of this uh, recycling effort. And there's phase one, the project involved, uh, they realized they needed to, to, to mix the fiberglass with a polymer fiber, basically a plastic fiber, to then uh, turn it into a textile, which is what they're working on now, phase two. And so they're making yarn with recycled blade glass that has been also mixed with polymer fibers that at a certain ratio so that has a mechanical properties to it now my first thought rosemary is like that seems like it's super complicated <laughs> and where would you possibly put this product because when we talked about recycling fabric before recycling blades your question was how consistent of a product would this be could you use it for anything structural isn't that the same issue here? Yeah, I actually, um, it's interesting that this comes up now because one of the first YouTube videos that I made was on, well, there was a few that I did on winter bone blade recycling really early on. And I interviewed a couple of people who are working on projects. And one of them was this guy, Ryan Ginder, I think that's how you say his last name, who was a researcher at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. And he had a pyrolysis process that was somewhat unique amongst um, other, I mean, pyrolysis isn't, he didn't invent pyrolysis as a way to recover fibers from um, the yeah, wind turbine blades, but his, his process was a little different. And just last week or the week before, I tried to get in touch with him to say, you know, what, what have you been doing? Whatever happened to your process? Did you commercialize it? Because there's a couple of different companies in that area that seemed to be doing something similar to what he was trying to do or his research group was trying to do back then in 2020, I think it was. Um, So I haven't heard back from him. So I can only speculate, but, you know, it does seem like decent coincidence that 
you know, um, Knoxville that big of a place that there would be multiple different technologies being developed to recycle wind turbine blades there. It doesn't, I don't know, I haven't been there, but it seems unlikely to me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the main, one of the main reasons why I was interested in his technology was because the fibres did retain quite a lot of their structural properties after the process. They're not, they're not exactly the same, um, or they weren't back then. Maybe improvements have been made. Um, and some of the disadvantages are the energy use of the of the process and also the fact that unless you, you know, when you, pyrolysis is basically burning off the resin and when you, when you do that, you release, it, it forms carbon dioxide. Anytime that you burn something with carbon in it in the atmosphere, then you're going to form carbon dioxide. And so then unless you capture it, that's going to escape out into the atmosphere. So it's not a carbon neutral process at all. Um, so yeah, those were the, the main downsides, but um, I thought it was interesting back then. I still think it's interesting. would love to, to catch up um, with Ryan again and see how he's gone. And yeah, if any or all of the companies that have similar processes now have spun off from his innovation back then. So is, is the process, process that they were working on just a low temperature burning of the epoxy resin? Because you can't go super high on temperature with fiberglass. It doesn't like it. It changes the mechanical properties quite a bit. What what was the approach there? Yeah, exactly. So their um their process was a, a two temperature step process. Yeah, and the whole the whole point of that two step process was so that they could maintain as much uh, strength in the glass fibers as possible. Because, like you say, in a normal single high temperature pyrolysis step, you usually degrade those fibers a lot. Um, and so they were saying that um, their improvement over a, a normal recovered fiber from yeah, single-step pyrolysis, the tensile strength was 19% better and strain to failure 43% um, higher than in that single-step process. So, yeah, that's, that's the point. So does that yield usable what? Fiber? But fiber in a weird term is a, is a mixture of unidirectional and woven. What do you do with this? thing that's just like random fiber everywhere do you straighten it out and try to make it into a yarn yeah well the highest value thing you could do with it would be to <laughs> coax all of the fibers back into some sort of nice regular um, pattern I think that the years since then have been primarily spent commercializing it so that's going to you know, involves steps uh, like taking what was a lab scale process for the process itself and, um, yeah, scaling that up to something you could do in a manufacturing facility at volume. And then it's going to be solving logistical challenges like how do you, we, yeah, like you can imagine in a lab scale, if you've got like a little handful of random fibers, you can kind of get a comb and tease them out and, you know, get them into a nice uh, uniform pattern. Um, and then when you want to do that commercially, obviously you're not going to just employ a thousand people to comb out fiberglass. Um, you've got to figure out some way to do that automatically. So those will be the sorts of activities I would guess that they've been doing in the past few years. Does it create a product that has a high enough value? I guess is my question without all the, cause you, you're going to put a good bit of work back into it. One and trying to remove the epoxy out of it, but two, also weave it into or make it into some sort of fabric-like product. That's pretty difficult to do. I'd be surprised if they're using this lower quality um, fiberglass in wind turbine blades again, but you would be able to use it in other structural applications um, that you know still needed quite a lot from their fiberglass, but maybe the strength to weight ratio isn't as critical as it is in a, a wind turbine blade. And as I mentioned at the start, 
the um, CO2 emissions from it are probably going to be as bad, maybe probably worse than using virgin fibers. So you have to you know, consider what your goals are with the recycling as well. So this week's wind farm of the week, Persimmon Creek Wind Farm. So Persimmon Creek Wind Farm is a 200 megawatt facility in Oklahoma. It was originally built by Colorado-based Scout Clean Energy. That was their first completed wind development project. Uh, it has 80 GE 2.5 megawatt turbines. The whole project was completed in under nine months, and the facility has been online since September 2018. Uh, why they're the wind farm of the week, though, is this spring, Scout Clean Energy, uh, they announced that, that along with their uh, joint venture partner, Elewan Energy, they sold the whole thing to Evergy. So Evergy paid $250 million for the Persimmon Creek wind farm. That gave Scout Clean Energy some capital back in to, uh, to reinvest. So they originally put in 273 to $275 million back in 2018. They sold it five years later for 250 So uh, they got five years of production out of it as well. Um, so some uh, good return on investment there. The wind farm originally employed 250 people during development and construction uh, and then provided the uh, community in $75 million worth of benefits through wages, property taxes, and tax abatement programs. So Persimmon Creek Wind Farm that is now owned by Evergy, Wind Farm of the Week this week. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.